0: I invite you to open your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. I want to speak to you this morning concerning the generosity of God. We're going to read this ninth chapter in its entirety. I'm going to begin in verse 1. And read down through the 15th verse if you'll follow along as I do that. Paul says this in verse 1 Concerning the ministering to the saints, it is superfluous for me to write to you, for I know your willingness, about which I boast of you to the Macedonians, that Achaia was ready a year ago, and now your zeal has stirred up the majority. Yet I have sent the brethren lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this respect that as I said you may be ready lest if some Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared we not to mention you should be ashamed of this confident boasting therefore I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand which you had previously promised that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one of you give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you always, having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work, as it is written. He has dispersed abroad. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed you have have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. While you are enriched in everything for all liberality, which causes thanksgiving through us to God, for the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also is abounding through many thanksgivings to God. While through the proof of this ministry, they glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ and for your liberal sharing with them and all men. And by their prayer for you, who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you. That gets us all the way down to verse 15. Which is really why I had you turn here this morning. Where Paul says, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. He's saying, thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift generosity we're going to explore this last verse of this after a bit of introduction to the ninth chapter but first if you would pause and let's ask the lord's blessing on it our father we come to you we ask lord that you would open your word to our understanding that you would exalt christ to his rightful place and you would do so by your spirit we ask it in his name amen humility and generosity These two great virtues are to be found in those who profess the name of Jesus Christ. This is the expectation of Scripture on those who name Christ as Savior. Among many other things, and we could turn to Galatians 5 there and read a listing of the fruit of the Spirit. We could peruse our New Testaments and find many other expectations of Christians, of those who are walking and living and following Christ. The example of the Lord Jesus Christ. But these two I'm coupling together this morning. Humility and generosity because of the things that they share in common. The last verse of this ninth chapter has to refer to one of two things. It either refers to the grace given to the Corinthian church To be generous to those poor Christians in Jerusalem, or it refers to something far greater. I'm going to tip my hand early on. I think it refers to something far greater. So, humility and generosity have these things in common. This is where I want to begin. Both are completely unnatural and must be worked in us by the grace of God. By his spirit, through the word, the natural man being yet unborn and alive to the things of God can make no sustained progress in either of these areas. Neither humility nor generosity will mark him or her long term. Both of these humility and generosity are evidences of true saving faith. The truly humble and generous person knows the Lord Jesus Christ. I say true because both of these virtues can be counterfeited. And Paul warns against the counterfeit of both. In the Colossian letter, he writes of a false humility. We read in chapter 9 here that he writes of a grudging generosity or a grudging obligation. These two saving virtues are evidence of the work of grace in your heart and mine. The expectation of Scripture is that the longer we serve Christ and walk with Christ, the greater we will be sanctified in these two areas. There is another thing that these two share in common. Only these two virtues have Great example attached to them, both of them by Paul. Let me see if I can explain what I mean. Humility in Philippians chapter 2, that chapter where Paul exhorts believers to unity, to exalt other people before themselves and their, their desires above their own. You remember that he says this, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then he goes into that verses-long explanation of the mind of Christ and his humility, setting aside equality with God. I have a notation in my Bible in the margin. Years ago, some of you know John Green, he was preaching on this text, and he said this. He said, some of the highest Christology in the New Testament in context addresses the need for humility and unity. It's rather amazing when you think about it. Some of the greatest things that we know about Jesus Christ, about him in eternity past, setting aside that glory, resuming that glory, being highly exalted of his father comes to us in the context of Paul exhorting believers to be humble and Paul exhorting believers to be unified. And then he gives the great example of Christ's own humility. I want to suggest to you that's exactly what he's doing in verse 15 of 2 Corinthians 9, but this time in the direction of God the Father's generosity. Let me read that verse again. After he's considering the work of grace in the hearts of the Corinthians to be generous to their less than fortunate Jerusalem brethren, he says... Towards the end, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. I think we best read this as doxology. And isn't this the normal pattern of Paul? How often can he consider some great spiritually profound truth? And then it leads him into doxology. You can't read the book of Romans without seeing that several times over. And so that's why John Gill, an old commentator on the scriptures, he says the apostle suggests one of the strongest arguments that can be used to stir up the saints to generosity and liberality. This one is taken from the wonderful grace of God in the gift of his son. So when we take both of these together, humility, generosity, both of them having attached These great examples, one of Christ, one of the one of the father in Christ and through Christ. Then surely that points to the priority and importance that is placed by the scriptures, by God himself upon these two virtues being displayed in truth in our lives as we walk with the Lord. Are you humble? Are you growing in humility? Are you generous towards your brethren? Are you growing in it? We must be humble because Christ was humble. We must be generous because God, our Father, has dealt with us in a most generous way by giving us the gift of his Son. But these two, also speaking of the importance, also point to the difficulty. In few places do we struggle as greatly as being humble and generous. How often can we cite the verse here? The spirit is willing. The flesh is weak. Meditating upon the humility of our Lord and the generosity of our Father stirs up those same in us. Both speak of the great love with which we have been and are being loved. Now, before we look at verse 15 in, in a little deeper way I want to go back to the first verse of chapter 9 and just see the occasion of generosity I'm going to cover this quickly So, the occasion here in chapter 9 Paul was leading the taking up of an offering to help poor Christians in Jerusalem the church in Jerusalem was impoverished They stood in great need, and there was really no way that they could remedy that problem on their own. If you have the Reformation Study Bible, you will notice that there is a note attached to verse 1 of chapter 9, and it says, giving money to help other Christians in need was itself the result of God's grace. He provided both the resources and the willingness to use them. So in in considering this virtue of generosity in general, Let's look at something out of verse 2. Paul says, I know your willingness. That in itself is owing to the grace of God in us alone. To be willing to give of our own resources that have cost us our time and energy, perhaps our blood, sweat, and tears. To be willing to freely and generously, cheerfully give those to serve brethren in other places that we may never ever meet is owing only to the grace of God in our heart. That's something that not many, if any, people would do naturally. So Paul says, I know your willingness about which I boast of you to the Macedonians. If we keep reading in the second verse, not only do we know that they were willing, but we see here that a willingness to give is somewhat contagious. He says, your zeal in this has stirred up the majority. Generosity as a virtue is contagious and can be caught by other Christians. That's exactly what's happening. That's what Paul is writing about here. Why is that? Because it's seen to be the grace of God in your life. It's seen to be the operation of the Spirit in your life And the Christ in me is drawn to the expression of generosity in you. And then together we can walk side by side as we are generous to others. It's contagious. But at the same time, notice what Paul says in verse 5 concerning this generosity or willingness to give. In the fifth verse, he speaks of exhorting. Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of time and prepare your generous gift. This type of generosity must be encouraged. And as with any virtue, it is something that we must continually fan the flame of. Any work of grace in my heart or yours, if it is not continually fed by the truth of Scripture and then acted upon Will dwindle. That's why we are continually at the help of the spirit of God. And we need to recognize that. So he's saying here. I have encouraged others to come and encourage you further. Even though your zeal is contagious. Even though you already possess a willingness. Basically he is saying do not let it die. Go on and do what you said you're going to do. He talks about the great difference in the true expression of generosity and the false. You'll notice this also at the end of verse 5. He says, in essence, go on and do what you have promised to do, that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as a grudging obligation. Now, can we just be honest with each other for a moment? Very often... If we are not careful and if we are not submitting to the Lord, our generosity is better explained as grudging obligation. We know it's something we ought to do, something we must do, something we have to do, but we don't often see it as the privilege that it is to give to the cause of Christ, whether it's in a local church like this or that then faithfully, Lord, helping us stewarding those finances and giving them out to people across the world in places that will never go. Paul says here, let it be a matter of generosity. I like the King James Version here. It says, let it be a matter of bounty. If God has dealt bountifully with you, which the Psalms tell us that he has, then we should be bountifully dealing with others. The ESV uses this word. It says, let it be a willing gift. On the other hand, where the New King James says, do not let it be a grudging obligation. The King James uses a curious word here, but I think it gets straight to the heart. It says, let it not be a matter of covetousness. Covetousness, saying in being, no, I'm going to keep this for myself. I'm going to keep what the Lord has provided for me, even though I have a bounty and an excess, I'm going to keep it for me. The ESV is also helpful. It says, let it not be an exaction. Let it not be something that is, in a sense, taxed out of you. Let it be something that flows out of you willingly and freely. And then there's a principle attached to this in the sixth verse. He says, but this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. That's the principle not only here in 2 Corinthians 9, but really that runs throughout the scripture. Those who have been recipients of the goodness of God, who have a heart to be a steward of that and to spread it and to make it known. We have the promises and the principles contained in Scripture that God will not be in our debt. He will provide in some measure or another. Please don't hear me saying that you're going to be overly prosperous. But the principle contained here is you will reap what you sow in this area of generosity. But not only is there a principle given, which we've read, there is the pleasure of God at stake. Notice a verse that we quote so often to ourselves. God loves a cheerful giver. Why is that? Well, again, I'm tipping my hand down to verse 15 because God has cheerfully given He loves it when we give in accord with him. But if you move on from this, the pleasure of God in generosity, notice there is not only a principle, but I'm going to go so far as to call this a promise in verse 8. God is able to make all grace abound toward you. That you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. Some would paraphrase this this way You and I cannot outgive God. If our generosity to the cause of Christ, to helping brethren who are less fortunate or poor, or to start churches in faraway lands, to, to make a way for the gospel to be preached in places where the gospel has not been preached, to support churches in places that are less, far less affluent than we are. If we are committed to doing that, notice again, verse 8, God is able to make grace abound toward you. And by the way, hasn't he done that already? I realize this is something that Paul is writing that is going to happen sometime future in response to not a grudging obligation, but a, willing, a willingness. He says, God is able to make all grace abound toward you that you will always have sufficiency in all things. And if you read through verse 10, down through verse 14, this goes back to the immediate context of the offering being taken for the Jerusalem church. I just want to read through it again. But notice in verse 10. Now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness. When we relinquish back to the Lord what he has given to us. Then according to verse 10, the fruits of righteousness are multiplied and the seed sown will increase. Now, don't hear me being a prosperity gospel preacher. It's not what I'm saying at all. But I'm trying to deal honestly with these verses 8, 9, and 10. When we hold with an open hand what the Lord has given us and we are as willing for it to go out as it is to come in. Then the Lord's blessing will be upon our life, upon that specific ministry, whatever it is, upon a local church like this. And then in verse 11, you are enriched in everything for all liberality, which causes thanksgiving through us to God. For the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, but is abounding through many thanksgivings to God. While through the proof of this ministry, they glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ and your liberal sharing with them and all men and by their prayer for you who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you. And then we get down to our verse. Some would see here verse 15 is just the natural conclusion to Paul's consideration of the work of grace in the hearts of the Corinthians. And I'll admit there is certainly that gener- there is certainly that general understanding there. We remember that generosity is a work of grace and it is a great work at that. However, there are many And I agree with them. In fact, the overwhelming majority of commentaries and study helps I looked at on this verse agree that the language in verse 15 is far too strong to confine it to this matter of the Corinthians generosity alone. Charles Hodge says rather we should understand it as a doxology or High praise to God in Christ, his words. This is an outburst of gratitude to God for the gift of Christ. Another well-known commentator, William Hendrickson, says this is a fitting conclusion to the preceding reference to God's surpassing grace. The gift of God is the birth, ministry, suffering, death, resurrection, ascension and eventual return of his son. And here we begin to see, at least in Paul's mind, as he understands and knows that the willingness of the Corinthians must have been worked out in them by the Spirit. Their zeal, which has been contagious to other regions, must have been worked out by the Spirit. He goes on and he says, this is such a cause for great thanksgiving in us to God. And by the time he gets down to the end of it. He says, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And the language that is too strong to not be a reference to Christ is this one word. Indescribable. It's only found one time in all the New Testament. The King James renders it unspeakable. The ESV says inexpressible. Albert Barnes, commenting on this, says the idea is that no words can properly express the greatness of the gift bestowed on man. It is higher than the mind can conceive. It is higher than language can express. That's the greatness of this word. It must refer to something other than the grace of God given to the Corinthians to be able to help poor brethren. Surely it refers to that in part. But if we see this as doxology and we remember that Jesus himself referred to himself as the gift of God. You might remember in John chapter four where he encounters the woman at the well. In his conversation with her. She asks the question. She's curious as to why this. Jewish man is having any dealing with her, a Samaritan woman. She says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And how did Jesus respond to her? He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. But this is not only at the words of Christ himself. That would be more than enough. But how often do we read in the scriptures, even what we began our service with this morning, that unto us a son is given. Or perhaps the best known passage in all of scripture, John chapter three, for God so loved the world that he gave You can chase that word all throughout your Old and New Testament in reference to what God has done for us in Christ. Christ was the Father's indescribable gift. The greatness of this gift is not to be confined to Christ's incarnation. It includes that. But it it extends to the whole ministry of Christ's redeeming work. And why is it that Paul would refer to it in this way as his indescribable gift? It's unspeakable. We can't find the words. And I, I told you last week in reference to this verse in passing. And I'll remind you here. Paul was a wordsmith. He dealt with words. He coined new words. Some think that this is a new word that he came up with right here. It's not found anywhere else but here. But he uses it because he, as great as his mind was and as greatly as the Spirit of God was working with him, just could not find the words to describe what God has done in Christ for a sinful, fallen humanity. It is indeed indescribable unspeakable, inexpressible. And we begin to look at the glories of Christ given for a sinful humanity. Then we begin to see the indescribable nature of it. Can I remind you of a few things concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ? The gospel of Jesus Christ Christ himself coming into the world to minister. To die, to be buried, to be raised to life, to then ascend into heaven. None of this was in response to man's request. Now, most likely. In the last day or two today or tomorrow. You have given or have received a gift from someone. And very often that's in response to a request. We ask our children, what would you like? As an expression of my love for you, what gift would you like? Now that doesn't mean that we're always going to give what they request, but we at least make that very often a possibility The gift of Christ was not in response to any sort of request at all. That's why it's indescribable. The gift of Christ was not earned. Sometimes we will tell our children, you will tell yours, you do this work and you will earn a reward. This gift of Christ given to us by the Father was not earned. And in that sense, it's indescribable. This gift of Christ. To the world was not in response to anything in us but our own misery and fallenness and sin. To use the words of the Old Testament prophet, the Lord looks down at mankind having fallen, wallowing in his own blood, unable to do anything about it, and then breaking onto to the scene. The indescribable gift of God comes to make remedy to that situation. We're reminded of that. In verses, I hope in the Lord's good time soon to begin to go through the book of Ephesians, we're reminded of that in those early verses where Paul writes, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ, according to, I want to leave that blank for just a bit. According to what? According to what? Paul says, according to the good pleasure of his will. Why did the father send his son into the world as an indescribable gift? It is owing to no other explanation than to the good pleasure of his will. It pleased him to do so. Paul goes on there to say to the praise of the glory of his grace by which he made us accepted in the beloved. That's why in 2 Corinthians 9. As Paul is running through this offering that's being taken up and the generosity of this people whose hearts were once cold and callous. And he sees that they have now been acted upon by the grace of God. The spirit of God is indwelling them, residing in them, and it is producing in them this not grudging giving, but cheerful giving. It's not a grudging obligation, but a willingness of heart. And he is reminded as he writes through this and he gets toward the end of this thought. Oh, how great the father has been to us in giving us his son. It is indeed indescribable. We can go on with the reasons that Paul uses this word. Certainly it would be because of the humility of Jesus. Can you describe really what it would have been like for the lord of glory who had only known throughout all eternity past equality with god to set that aside to enter into his creation to come to bleed and to die can you really put that into words of the great love that was displayed and manifested in that isn't it indescribable what about of his power Not just his humility, but his power. Jesus said of himself, I have the power to lay down my life and I have the power to take it up again. Who else but the Son of God could say that? Who else but the Son of God with such confidence could lay down a life and then three days later take it again? And I realize the scripture attests the resurrection of Christ to both the Father and the Son. The Father raised him, according to Paul in Romans 1, as a display of, yes, his power, but also a declaration that this was indeed the Son of God. But then we have the verses in the Gospels that tell us that Jesus was active in his resurrection as well. So it's indescribable because of his humility, his power, because of his love. Greater love has no man than this, and you finish that, than that he would lay down his life for his friends. Indescribable. This is the gift of the Father to us. The scriptures tell us that God is love, unequivocally. And since he is love, he has made that love known to us in Christ. We can go on, and I am going to go on for a bit. It is indescribable because of his sufferings. No man ever suffered like Jesus Christ suffered. When you read the 53rd chapter of Isaiah and you go on through those chapters that talk about the suffering servant. The prophecies about the Christ who would come to suffer. You get down into those verses, which sometimes can be hard to read. But we get to the point to where the scriptures say his visage, his visage was marred more than any man. And that means and if you keep reading He was barely recognizable to be human by the time the crucifixion was over. In this season of the year, we get so wrapped up in the birth of a child. And it is glorious. I understand. You understand. It is one of the most glorious things ever for the Son of God to enter his creation, born of a virgin. His birth announced to the the humble, lowly shepherds born in a in a stable, laid in a manger. We understand all of that. But the indescribable nature of his gift goes so much further than just that. It doesn't stop there. You realize if Christ had only been born, we would have had no Savior. But when we put all of these things together, his birth, his ministry, his suffering, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and dare we leave out his eventual return, Then we have the indescribable gift in all of its multifaceted nature because of his sufferings. No man suffered like he suffered. And his suffering was due to nothing that he himself had done. He was innocent. He was harmless. Pilate himself said, I find no fault in him. None. But yet, even though he was innocent, even though he did not return reviling for reviling, he suffered greatly to the point of death. Even, Paul says, the death of the cross. Indescribable. Also indescribable because of his death itself. Yes, he suffered, but there was a point in time to where he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The scriptures relate that to us. His life was not taken, Jesus Christ was not killed. He was not murdered. He gave his life willingly, and there is a difference. He suffered, yes, at the hands of the Roman government. He suffered, yes, at the hands of his own people. But the life that he gave, or the life that he was given is the life that he gave. No one took it. Only the Son of God could say something like that. Only he could bow his head and give up his spirit as he did. It's indescribable because of the nature of his death. But this indescribable gift given to us by our Father in heaven is also such because of the resurrection of Jesus. Unlike anything else. Yes, there had been those who had been raised from the dead before, but not like this man. There had been those that he himself had called out of the grave, Lazarus, most notably, under the Old Testament. There there were those who were raised from the dead, but this is the very Son of God. And the scripture says that he was raised for our justification. Indescribable. What about his ascension? You remember there in the early parts of the book of Acts how the apostles are are gathered there and they watched Jesus ascend into heaven. And the men in white raiment standing there, the angels said, Why are you so perplexed? Why are you so confused? this same Jesus will so come in like manner. Just as you see him go into heaven, he is going to eventually return. Indescribable, and it leads to my last point, his return. This baby that was born, placed in a manger, who grew to confound the chief priests, who grew to minister in mercy to those around him, who grew to preach the word of God, the spirit of the Lord, anointing him to do so, to rebuke Pharisees, to dispense grace and mercy to the poor, to go to the cross and die, to be raised from the dead, to ascend into heaven. The scripture tells us, and it is held out as our great hope that this same Christ will come again. All of that is indescribable. When we speak of it, we just begin to to scratch at the surface of what it means. I guess if I could sum all of this up, it would be in this way, that God, our Father, is the greatest giver. But let's take that a step further. Christ is the greatest gift. What will you do? With this indescribable gift of God. The scriptures say plainly that if you will be saved. You must receive it. Don't be confused. There are those who would tell you if you would be saved you will give something to God. You'll give your heart to Jesus. Find chapter and verse in your Bible, and then I'll believe it. What the scriptures say is when you are saved, if you will be saved, you receive from heaven. You're not giving God anything. He is giving you everything. He came into his own, and his own what? Received him not. If you will be saved, you must receive. Receive the Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope that there are questions in some of your minds. How? How do I receive this indescribable gift of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, the scriptures answer that question for us. They say, You must repent of your sins and turn to Christ, you must believe that He is. All that he said he is. And that he has done for you. All that the scriptures record for you. Let me phrase it this way. If you will be saved and receive Christ. You must come to Christ in believing repentance. And in repentant belief. If you will do that. I can say on the authority of the scriptures that he will save you. He will not turn you away. He will not hold out his arm to you. I realize there's great mystery here. Yes, the Lord has to be operative. According to the good pleasure of his will, he has to open a heart. He has to give eyes to see. He has to give ears to hear. But at the same time, I can say with all biblical authority behind it, you must come to Christ and receive him. You must turn from your sins and turn to Christ. True repentance is not just turning from your sin. It's turning from your sin and full on embracing the person of Jesus Christ as your Savior. He is your only hope. If you will be saved, you must receive him. So that's my understanding of this fifteenth verse. One thing that we haven't dealt with here. We've tried, I've tried to describe the indescribable, and in very many ways that's a vain attempt. But notice the first word in verse fifteen Thanks. Thanks be to God. For his indescribable gift. Is your heart full. Of thanksgiving. Is your heart full. Of gratitude. Are you completely. Overwhelmed and overcome. When you think that God the father. According to his good pleasure. Not in response to a request. Not in response to anything earned. But according to his own good pleasure. Gave his son. To redeem a people. And you are numbered. In their number. Does your heart just not overflow. With rejoicing to God. Can you not see now. This doxology of Paul. In this 15th verse. Thanks be to God. For his indescribable gift. So let me conclude here. And just. Exhort you. And I think on good ground, I can go so far as to say beseech or, if you want plain language, beg. Won't you come to Christ? There is no reason to leave this place, to close your eyes and sleep this night, and not be united to Christ by faith. There is no good, sane reason. Now there will be many reasons that come into your mind, many excuses, perhaps of delay, I'll do it later, perhaps just of of rank unbelief. But can I remind you, as the old hymn writer said, that time, like an ever-rolling stream, bears all its sons away. What is he saying there? Given enough time, you will be just like everyone else if the Lord tarries, your cold, lifeless body will be placed in a grave. I read something recently, some of you probably have, have read this, concerning you know, all of the the fanfare of cultural Christmas, but even what we've been talking about here this morning of the indescribable gift of God none of us from the youngest in this room are guaranteed that we will be here next Christmas most likely in my life and in yours there will be those that we know and love maybe even we ourselves may not be here not only a year from now But tomorrow. That's why it's imperative. To act. Upon that inner conviction of the spirit. Wooing you to Christ. No man can come to me. Unless my father. Draws him. If you feel the drawing. And the wooing of the spirit to come to Christ. Do it now. Without delay. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this indescribable gift of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray it would produce in us the very things that Paul was writing about, that we would cheerfully give of what you have given us. Lord, there's great principle and promise in this chapter. You will provide for your own in some way or another. Very often you use us to provide for our brothers and sisters. But Lord, we don't want to miss the greatest part of this chapter. The indescribable gift of God. We're thankful, Lord, our hearts rightly fill with thanksgiving and gratitude when we consider the magnitude of our salvation. What a great salvation you have given us. And Father, I pray that every person here that can tell their right hand from their left would come to Christ. That there would be no good excuse or reason in their hearts to deny again the Son of God. Lord, would you give that grace? Would you be that merciful? We beseech you to do it. And we do so only so you would receive all the glory. Do it in a way where Jesus Christ is magnified and honored. That's our prayer. And we ask it in his name, the name above all names. Amen.